You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. All right, Matthew 18 is our time together tonight. Every year around January, people inevitably, it becomes almost literally like calendar clockwork, will look at themselves differently with the intention to try to hopefully change that look in the months to come. They look at their waistlines and they think, what I see is not what I hope to see three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now. And then want to make some changes. For some, the solutions hit the treadmill. Hit the treadmill, part of the time to do so. For others, it's, listen, skip the frequent snacks. I'm the worst at this. Love my Oreos. Skip the frequent snacks. For others, it's maybe cut out the sodas. For others, it's to change the serving size of the actual portion of food, whatever the portion of food is you're actually eating. Overall, the goal is the same. The goal is to kind of move yourself in the general direction of being healthier. These type of considerations are valued in a city like ours, Miami, which is known similar to other cities like Los Angeles and others that are in warmer tropical environments where people seemingly value health. They value fitness. And sometimes, as even one of our pastors has prayed, they've come about to the point of idolatry. But setting that concern aside, nevertheless, it can be a concern, a, a desire to be healthier. What would it look like for you to be healthier three months from now? Would you measure it based on your waistline? Would you measure it based on your heart rate? But what about the local church? What does it look like for a church to be healthier? Do we look at its waistline? What is a church's waistline? What does it look like for a church to get on the treadmill, for a, a church to take a look at its intake? What, what does it mean for a church to be healthy or maybe not so much? Less calories and more exercise or maybe a steady diet of scriptural intake, constantly fighting off the country club instinct that sometimes can tempt churches, which is relationally enjoyable, and so it can over time become very insulated, us for no more shut the door, as opposed to warm and welcoming. So let me just ask you to consider, what would you say are some features of a healthy church? Loving and welcoming? Prayer being committed and seen and demonstrated? The scriptures being taught and produced in the sense of regularly being elevated, sung and read and prayed? Baptisms that reflect the new life in Christ? The gospel being central not just an evangelistic conversation for those who maybe don't know Christ, but for an all-of-life conversation as we continue in Christ. Faithfulness to the Lord's Supper, that we participate in it regularly as a commitment to our Lord, a proclamation of His life, His work for us. Church discipline as a church, as we engage with one another, a culture of discipleship, older to younger, sacrificial financial giving, that's practice where we take what the Lord has given to us and say, we want to invest where moth and rust do not destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. 
a fresh injection of new Christians because evangelism, God is blessing and it's being fruitful. Service is seen as being normal, not exceptional, not just the small minority who seemingly have more time than the rest of us or more interest than the rest of us, but the rest of us, well, will just enjoy the service. No, all of these things. Now of that list, let me ask you a question. What stuck out to you? What's a, a point of consideration for you? Prayer? Perhaps you want to be in a church that prayer is not just seemingly something you do like before a meal or after a meal or before bedtime. Not that that's wrong to do so, but is it more than that? Perhaps discipleship. Perhaps that's uncommon for many Christian ears today. Discipleship meaning the class I go to? Oh, yeah. But also the people you're engaging with. Service? How about that reference to church discipline? I would guess for many of you today that those terms, specifically that of church discipline, seem strange, if not completely unheard of. I mean, outside of the examples of, listen, a little bit more self-control with how many sodas I drink, or a little bit more self-control with how much TV I watch at night before I go to bed, other than that, as an application of discipline, Discipline is often associated negatively, concerningly, maybe even judgmentally. And yet this understanding and corresponding practice is one of the most neglected teachings that Christ has given to the church. Church discipline is indeed for the church. And it didn't come just from the writings of Paul, though that would be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It came out of the mouth of the Son of God himself as he expected his disciples to understand from the very beginning that this very profession of Christ in Matthew 16 would be demonstrated in care for each other in Matthew 18. Though Jesus desires it, it seems, as is often the times the case, sadly a misunderstanding of church discipline as one of the most neglected marks of most local churches, at least in the West. Listen to what some others have said about it as lack, about its lack in churches. Quote, discipline due but ignored is not love but sentimentality, which is love's counterfeit. Another has said, a church without discipline can hardly be counted as a church. Another has said, without a recovery of functional church discipline, the church will continue its slide into moral disillusion and relativism. Another has said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Well, in humility, we do not want that to be true. We want Christ to be present, and we want all of His Word to be taught. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, or you've not been with us in a while, it is our practice to kind of teach through the Scriptures and to do so consistently and consecutively. And so it's our practice, what's known as expositional preaching, to go through the Scriptures. And we've been working our way through the writings of Matthew as he's recording the teachings of Jesus. And we're up to Matthew chapter 18. And here's the beauty of churches committed to expositional preaching. God determines the diet for his people. So whatever God puts in front of his people with his word, the preacher's job is to keep serving that up. As opposed to what oftentimes can be a temptation, which is whatever the children want to eat for dinner, this is what we give them. Which might look like good parenting because you keep the kids happy, in the end, all you're really doing is keeping the dentist happy with all of their rotten teeth because of all the candy they've been eating. 
and keeping themselves happy, but neglecting nutrients and nutritious food that they should be having at home. Well, friends, this is all the more true in local churches where we want to preach all of God's word. And so it's our practice to do so, and we continue in our series as we're working through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, let me ask you to turn there, because this evening we begin in this next section of scriptures, Matthew 18, verses 15 and 20, a two-week series this Sunday and next Sunday titled, Why Church Discipline is a Sign of a Good Church. Not a bad church, not an old church, not an outdated church, not a judgmental church, but a good church. And you'll be able to ask yourself when we're done, do you agree or disagree based on the teachings of Jesus? What we're going to learn, just to give away the punchline, love has everything to do with it. Has everything to do with it. Now, one of the most common expressions of kind of family bonding in homes where you have particularly international adoptions is you'll have children born in one country speaking one language in their birth country and having learned that for however many years that they've lived there, if they've grown up in that country for any number of years, to then be adopted by another family in another country, they have this intersection of culture and languages. And in that intersection of culture and languages, it's not uncommon for the child to ask the parent, mom, dad, what, what does this mean? They're learning how to communicate to their mom and dad, but they don't know some of the words that they hear their mom and dad say, or they've heard their siblings say, and they want to know what it means. What, what does it mean? Well, sometimes children don't ask the question. Their eyes just kind of get glazed over and they're confused. Well, tonight, I don't want that to happen. So before we get to the actual text, let me just set the framework and define some terms here for us. Because the term church discipline can seemingly perhaps be a little disorienting. I want to talk about this. You could come up with synonym descriptions. I've given a few here I want to share with you. Church faithfulness, church health, church fellowship, church testimony, church integrity, church purity, Christian confrontation, Christian restoration, Christian love, body building restoration. Throughout church history, it's often referred to as the practice of church discipline, a care for each other in the body of Christ. What we want to understand is that God intends His people to be distinct in this world. This has been true from the beginning. You think about how God called the people of Israel and called them out from amongst the nations to live differently from the rest of the nations. And what was so consistently a problem, and you don't have to take my word for it, you can just like almost literally like flip to any part of the Old Testament, like, oh, there it is again, oh, there it is again, like, good night, like, these people not get it. So commonly, God would give them his word, he'd give them blessings, he'd give them provision, and they'd be like, thank you. And then they would return back to be with the other nations. And God's like, no, 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 come back here. And he'd send prophets. And he'd call them back, and they would come back and repent. And then after a little bit of time, they would go back. And finally, after so many different times, he's like, finally enough, I have to now remove you from the land I've given you to discipline you for not one year, not two years, but for several decades. God has always been concerned about his people representing him and his word before this watching world. Nothing has changed. Instead, the focus of the nation being on the nation of Israel, it's now on the church. The church is now made, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, of Jews and Gentiles, a, a group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation called out by God through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to a people for his own possession. 
This is why we refer to it as the church, church discipline. It is the idea of the church. It's not just an individual. It's not just Christian discipline. It's the the body of believers together. It's also the idea of discipline because of what it speaks to, the actual act of care. If you were to look up a definition of discipline, it would be something like this. Care and punishment inflicted by way of correction and training. Behavior that's in accord with rules of conduct. Behavior and order maintained by training and control. Good discipline in an army. Unfortunately, this term is more often negatively associated than it is positively associated. Outside of maybe a few sort of inspirational men and women among society who decide to go into the military because they appreciate discipline, most people are like, dude, that's a bit aggressive. I prefer to be rather autonomous and individual. I prefer to be rather self-selective from anything from what I wear to what I eat to what I do, even largely with my Christianity. I even appreciate sort of being an independent Christian and really display of my ability to discern what's best for me. A podcast here, a YouTube channel there, a Bible passage here, a small group of Christians here, a couple of friends we catch up here. I will kind of self-select my Christian expression. Not uncommon, very common for Christians today. And all that speaks to is what is a profound serial problem with Christians in the world at large, particularly in the West, which is a large problem of individuality that's coming at the expense of not only their own walk with the Lord, but a clear testimony of what it means to be a Christian before the watching world. So what we want to do is we want to have a clear understanding of what we mean. We're not talking about cutting our Cokes from two a day to one a day or reducing your coffee from five cups a day to three cups, or reducing your TV time from three hours to one hour. Talk about something much more significant. And so look Matthew 18 now at our text, verses 15 to 20. Jesus, continuing the conversation that he said, and back in verse 1, speaking to his disciples, says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if it does not, listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This passage taken out of context might not only be disorienting, it might actually seem condemning or very unloving. But friends, may I remind you that context is king. This text, this particular section of Scripture comes inside of a larger context. In fact, earlier as we saw last week, he is dealing with the seriousness of sin. 
it's so serious as he's speaking about these temptations that he says in verse 8 and 9, if anything caused you to sin, you should cut it off. And he's speaking about your own life, your own walk with the Lord. And so he's speaking first and foremost about the implied reality of self-examination in verse 8 and 9. If your hand causes you, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet. Jesus understands the reality here, which is sin does not stop once you are saved. In fact, if anything, it becomes more pronounced in your awareness of it. Your conscience is now more alert to the realities of the temptations towards it. And you become more sensitive to it bothering you. But Jesus says sin is not just a private matter, it's also a public matter. And that's the part of our passage tonight in verses 15 and 20. But you might be asking the question, but, but what about forgiveness? What, isn't Jesus about something about turning the other cheek and loving and you know, not casting the first stone? That's kind of the Jesus I remember my friends telling me about. And that's maybe even why you're here tonight, because you're thinking, man, I could use some more forgiveness in my life because I feel condemned with all the things I've done. Friends, good news. That same Jesus you're hearing about in forgiveness is the same Jesus speaking these words. In fact, ironically, it's the very same topic he continues in. So if you would with me, continue with me in the text. Look at verse 21. So right after what Jesus just said in 15 to 20, look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a sneak peek at what's coming in the coming weeks. Profound passage on forgiveness. My point here this evening is to simply say the text we're in tonight is not contradicting forgiveness. In fact, it's related to it. It's tied to it. But our text this evening, as I've just read to us, is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And for our purposes, we're going to just focus on the first couple of verses this evening and the next couple of verses next Sunday evening. Because Jesus is really laying out for us here 
throughout, as we see in the Scriptures and what's been referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 1 and Galatians 1, of what are really known as the, the four steps of church discipline. So if you would, let's look at them in order. First step, private conversation. Go back to verse 15. Private conversation. Look at what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So a few things I want you to observe in this text. First of all, I want you to see the family nature of this conversation. There is an understanding when Jesus uses this term brother, it is somebody to whom they are related to, not generationally or genealogically, who they're related to spiritually. Jesus speaking to his disciples is beginning to recast who are his true brothers and sisters. As earlier in his life in the ministry, when it says that his mom and his siblings came to see him and he spoke about who are his true siblings, those who do the will of his father. So Jesus is now turning this from not only the relationship to God, but now the relationship to each other. And there is an understandable responsibility. The point to recognize here is that there's a uniqueness in relationship that Christians have to each other as Christians. That's different than we have to others in the world. In other words, saying it differently, as Paul would say himself later, it's not as if we find the non-Christians around us, good friends of mine, family members of mine. It's not that I find that their sin is something like I am taking responsibility for in the same way as I do Christians. In fact, I think that is completely different. They're doing what their hearts are inclined to do. And I'm sort of triaging my concerns and conversations with them. But within the body of Christ, there is an expression, there is a care, there is a demonstration of relationship and responsibility. Look at also what he says here, if your brother sins against you. Notice the, the framework. What's the threshold here? It's not personality. It's not preference. It's not people did things that are on your nerves. You're just going to have that with your people long enough. You're just going to do things. I mean, I've been married to my wife this coming August for, you know, 25 years. There's inevitably things that she would do differently than I would do, or I would do differently than she would do, but those aren't sins. That's different expressions of personalities and relationships, and we're always going to have that. Jesus' concern, and should be our concern, is that the standard of expectation and therefore corresponding accountability are the, is the Word of God. It is the Word of God by which we are in humility encouraging each other and hoping and praying accordingly that we desire to live together in community. It says there is your brother sins against you. Now, there is a uniqueness in this text that comes out particularly focusing on interpersonal relationships. We would learn in other contexts like Galatians chapter 6 and other sections where sometimes it's not just seeing the sin that others have done against you. It's seeing the sin that others are doing even if it's not against you. Matthew 7 talks about this. Jesus already covered this. But the idea here is that there is an interpersonal dynamic of relationship. But notice the expectation, what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. He does not say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell your other brother what your brother did. He's not saying, hey, go and tell a couple other sisters what your sister did. That's called gossip. That's called gossip. And the Bible is very clear that we're not to be gossiping. You might be seeking counsel for how to have a conversation, but that's often very exceptional. 
What you see here is that there is an expectation, a stewardship of relationship that says, I have seen and I know based on the biblical expectation and I will pursue. I will pursue. Look how private it is. It says here, it is between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Friends, I think one of the most ungodliest things that happens in the church is how people can talk about people. And the telephone game usually doesn't go well in a constructive way. In fact, more often than not, Paul, James, Peter, other writers of the New Testament have to continue to remind Christians that are in community how to think the best of people, how love does not keep a record of wrongs, how it hopes all things, it bears all things, how it's patient and kind. Godly churches that live together in community desire to speak privately about biblical concerns and not do so publicly in a way that slanders or gossips about each other. So that's what's happening here. My wife's grandfather had diabetes. And uh, it was a a strong case of diabetes. One of his symptoms, as not uncommon for some of you maybe have diabetes, depending on what type 1 or type 2, was he had bad circulation to his extremities, to his feet, to his hands. And this is a problem because he worked as a brick mason. So he was all the time on construction sites at different jobs doing different work. One of the times he was on a job, he stepped on a nail, did not even know he was standing on a nail. So the nail has pierced his boot, boot, is in his foot, and was there all day. And the only time he learned of it was when he came home at the end of the day, and he'd taken his stuff off, and he had blood trailing him in the house that his wife said, where's that blood coming from? And then realized what had happened, that he had stepped on a nail. Problem was, it was too late. Gangrene had already set in. And the doctors initially had to amputate some of his toes, which you can imagine if you're a brick mason, you're on your feet all the time, this is a huge problem being able to stand. But unfortunately, it continued to spread, and eventually he ended up having to have his foot cut off. And this is what ended up happening. But it was continued to spread further as they continued to have to go back. All of this because of an ordinary nail. A small little thing that if any one of us had stepped on it and removed it immediately, that kind of infection would not have spread. But isn't this what happens to Christians today? The early warning signs of our bodies spiritually have been numbed by the world. Our spiritual circulation is not as vital as it should be. We are not as sensitive to sin as we once were. And as a result of that, we're stepping on nails and we're bleeding. Bleeding. Not uncommon. It's called accidents. It's called sin. It's not unique to any one of us. It's common to all of us. Here comes the problem. When we see the blood and we say nothing. Is that loving? In the spirit of, I don't know who am I to judge? 
Who am I to, to speak to that? I don't want to get in their business. I'll sort of leave that to God as they limp through life, dripping blood, and then that infection spreads into other parts of their life, and we're saying, but who am I? Friends, that is as unloving as that wife to see her husband walk in the door from work, see that blood coming out of his foot, drawing across the floor and saying, that's his business, I don't want to get into it. You could never imagine a wife not serving her husband that way, expressing that concern, but why can we imagine so many Christians seeing a step on sins in our life and say nothing about it? That's not loving. That's unloving. And this is what Jesus wanted his people to understand. He wanted them in a loving, patient, forgiving, but also prayerfully with biblical relationships where they would pursue one another and if necessary, confront each other about what it was that they had done. To love Christ to love his word, to love his people. With all of the negative imagery associated with our culture with the term discipline that we shy away from, even saying the word alone gets you sometimes in trouble. Yet listen to how common it is in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We would say that a lack of parental care for their children is shown in a lack of corrective care by the parents. God has himself committed to disciplining the ones he loves. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In fact, the author of Hebrews is like, hey, you guys get this. You understand this. And look at what he says in the following verses. Right after chapter 12, verse 6, listen to what he says in verses 7 through 11. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Like, it's inconceivable. If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us when we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, for some of you, and I mean to be very pastorally sensitive here, if even the use of the word discipline and father is bringing up what could be best described as a bit of a PTSD moment, and I don't say that lightly, I mean that quite sincerely, because some of you have come from literally abusive homes where you were not lovingly parented by a mother or father or a grandparent, but you were physically abused. And this word discipline is pregnant with all of that association. Friend, I mean to kind of just do a hard stop right here and say, that's not what God is talking about. God is a good father who is wise and gentle, who disciplines out of care and concern, who is forgiving and merciful. He is the perfect heavenly Father. And I say that because that is the backdrop of understanding of relationship by which then is expressed in the fullness of a New Testament church and how we care for each other. 
What's the goal in all this? Look at what Jesus says back in Matthew 18, verse 15. If, you, he, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. What's one of the goals? One of the goals of this whole thing is restoration. It's to bring them back. To bring them back. They've lost their bearings. Come back into this. What's happening right now? Come back to the fold. Could be with the family. Jesus just spoke earlier in this this likelihood of this pursuing after sheep who are wandering and what it means to come back for them and to bring them back. It just says of the parable of the lost sheep in the previous verses, how God does that. You know how God pursues lost sheep? By sending his people after them. By sending his people. I sometimes find Christians, when I've had these conversations, and it's been very disorienting for them because when I come and bring a concern about their life, and they're like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What what? Like, we're like, you know, doing kung fu. Like, you know, what is happening? Trying to block the moves. Trying to block the, like, the verbal concerns. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Like, hey, what gives you the right to think you can do this? I'm like, well, the Bible speaks about that, but I have no right, just to be clear. It's not my standard. Second of all, I'm here as an ambassador for God. I'm, I'm here on behalf of the good shepherd, right? Matthew 18, previous verses to pursue you as a wandering sheep of how to care for you. So on behalf of your heavenly father, I'm here to express concerns for you based on his word, not mine. It says if they listen, you've won them. Do you know that most church disciplines happening all the time in churches, you just don't know about it? If you're in a good church where people are having this kind of conversation with each other, you just never know about it. Why? Because it was always a private conversation. Joe and I had this conversation. None of you had a clue about it. None of you had a clue about it. Garrett and I had this conversation. None of you had a clue about it. Danielle and Garrett had the conversation. None of you had a clue about it. Why? Because that's how it works in the Bible. That's how it works. You've won your brother. We're celebrating. It's rejoicing. And quite honestly, as Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Typically, you get like better friends through this whole process. Like, oh, you really do care about me. What happens if they don't listen, though? You've prayed, you've pursued, they're not listening, they're arguing, they're not repenting, they don't want to turn from their sin. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he does not listen, what is this about? This idea of bringing other people. Okay, now we get to gossip? Mm, mm. You would not believe, Joe. In fact, you know what? I want you to come see it for yourself. That's not the point. Where this comes from that Jesus is referencing is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moses was teaching the Israelites how to deal with issues within their community. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Like, Oh, wait, that's not serious. Stay with me. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Here's what is happening in Old Testament law. Here's what's happening in New Testament. Here's what's happened today in our own court proceedings. It cannot be your word against my word. That's not how this works. Did anybody else see it? Can anybody else confirm it? Is anybody else validated? 
This is not based on personality. And Joe and I are having this issue, and he's disagreeing with me, or I'm disagreeing with him. Is this just personality? Maybe we need help communicating to one another, and that we're both agreeing, but we're coming at this differently. And it's actually not a sin, and I think it is, but it's actually not. And I'm realizing that, and I'm not asking him to forgive me for thinking it was, and maybe being too confrontational about it. And Tiago and Julia have stepped in to help us think through this together with our Bibles open, prayerfully, patiently thinking. And that's awesome when that happens. But maybe it actually is a legitimate concern, and it should be, and others can confirm it objectively and biblically. This process is biblical. It is objective, not subjective. It is patient and kind. We'll pick up more on this next week, but let me just share this with you. What should be our attitude throughout this entire process, what Jesus is talking about? Let's take the scriptures and bring it to bear on this, the whole counsel of God. What should be your attitude throughout this entire process? Number one, humility. Our own humility. Jesus said himself earlier in Matthew chapter 7, hey, before you start worrying about the speck in somebody else's eye, I want you to take away with the log in your own eye. Then you can go to them. Then you can address things in their life, but deal with your own life first. So it's humility and self-examination. Secondly, it's you having a broken heart and being motivated by love. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. He's like, man, I don't want to come and bring correction. I want to bring with my broken heart. I want to bring love to you. But if you don't address this, I'm going to have to address it. We should seek to restore the person. This is what Paul says in Galatians to the Galatian church. Restoring them and do so forth in the spirit of gentleness. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. We should desire to help brothers and sisters see the error of their way. We want them to recognize this, to win them back, as James says in James chapter 5, verse 20. And we want to be ready to forgive, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7. Now here's the question. The question is not what does Grace Church believe? I know what we believe as a church. And the question is really not even, what do you believe? Because that answer might not be the same thing as what I'm about to ask you. The real question is, how do you practice Christianity in community? Start with your friendships within this church. Do you care for each other enough to express concerns about what you see? And the concerns... Quite understandably, it can just be like, hey, difference in personality, and that's helpful to get clarity. Concerns can be like, man, just, I'm not sure that was the wisest decision, but maybe you're thinking through it differently, and I could just learn from you. How did you come to that decision? Or the concerns could actually be, you know, I actually think this is sin. I, I think this text would say, you should not be doing this. I mean, am I wrong? Is there some information I'm missing here in this conversation? If there is, please fill me in, but otherwise, I, I feel like this is a concern. Do you love your friend more than you love your friendship with them? How do you know that? Because you're willing to lose the friendship, if but a short time maybe even, in order to really win your friend back, not to you, but to their unqualified, undistracted um, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is good godly friendships. And just think concentrically in circles, what does it look like for you to be in community with Christians where this is how you know and love and pray for each other?
At Grace Church, if you're new to Grace Church, we have a covenant that we say together, every one of our members being in which we lovingly, joyfully commit to one another to care for and to pray for each other, to love each other, and to do all kinds of just expressions of biblical care. To help each other in our parenting, help each other in our lives, help each other how we pursue life. This is simply an expression of what that looks like in action. And we're just simply quoting Jesus, our Savior, back to us. Now, for those of you who are not in Christ, and you're thinking, wow, this is like very disorienting. Um, I was thinking a little bit of Jesus with a lot of love would really kind of help address some concerns I have. I completely understand if you feel disoriented in that respect. But let me just kind of again give you the bearings just so you understand. We are going through all of the teachings of Jesus, not just teaching. We're applying as Jesus intended for his disciples, for the church. So this is not, Jesus not intending the world to do this. And we want to recognize our relationship with God is not because we walk perfectly, perfectly in obedience. Our relationship with God is secured through our faith alone in Jesus' work and sacrifice on the cross alone and the resurrection that came three days later because of his grace alone. So we are Christians by faith alone. But that Christianity is correspondingly demonstrated, not perfectly, but directionally in our continued desire to walk in obedience and have good enough godly friends around us to pull us back from the cliff when we're about to walk off into some area that's going to cost us a major consequence of our life. So if you're not a part of Grace Church and you're still praying about, come and get to know Grace Church. We'd love to talk to you about that and how we love to serve and pray and care for each other. But if it's not Grace Church, then find a good godly church where they will teach you all that the Bible says, not just the parts that people like to hear, where you can be in community together honoring the Lord. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.